Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Jude is a sobering book. In fact, it's almost discouraging when we read it because it describes the last days in which we live when false teachers abound. We're told that they're deceitful, creeping into the church with flattering words. They're destructive because they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny the Lord Jesus. And they're dangerous because they are hidden reefs that shipwreck people. They are selfish shepherds that devour the sheep. And they're wandering stars that lead people into eternal darkness. And after several weeks in Jude, you may be saying, well, how are we supposed to live our Christian life in these last days? I mean, it's hard enough to deal with the world, and now we've got these guys inside the churches. With all this deception, how are we going to make it? Well, Jude closes his book with the answer to that question. In verses 17 to 25, he tells us how to walk without falling. In fact, he tells us how to walk without even stumbling in this difficult time. So if we're going to avoid the pitfalls that surround us in these last days, we need to take heart, take to heart what Jude says in this passage. And he gives us four steps to a stumble-free life. And I've made them very simple so you can remember them. Know, grow, go, and glow. First of all, know, verses 17 to 19. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, this is the first imperative statement that Jude makes in his book. This is the first command, the first exhortation. Up until now, he's been talking about false teachers. Back in verse 8, he said, yet in the same manner, these men. Verse 10, but these men. Verse 11, woe to them. Verse 12, these men. Verse 14, and about these. Verse 16, these are grumblers. But when we come to verse 17, he says, but you. And the end of this book is a whole cluster of exhortations directed toward Christians. And the first is, remember the words of the apostles. In verse 16, he tells us that the false teachers speak arrogantly. They flatter people. And so Jude says, but you, rather than listening to them, you remember the words of the apostles. Now, what did the apostles tell us about false teachers? Well, three things he points out here. They tell us when they would come, what they would do, and why they would do it. First of all, he tells us when they would come. Verse 18, he says, in the last time. The apostles predicted that in the last time, false teachers would come. You say, well, where did they predict that? Well, turn over in your Bible just a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, Peter is writing, and he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Now those words are almost verbatim what Jude tells us here in the close of his letter. And so the apostles predicted that this would happen in the last days. Now you may look around and say, oh my, it's awful. Look what people are doing in the name of Christ. 
But before you get too distraught, Jude says, remember the words of the apostles because they predicted that this would happen. And as bad as it is in this world, it is not taking God by surprise. Jesus is not in heaven saying, oh no, wolves have snuck in among the sheep. He knows. And it's been predicted for over 1,900 years. And you know what? Rather than causing us to panic... This actually ought to bring us peace because the presence of these false teachers simply confirm the truth of God's Word and they let us know that we are presently living in the last days. You see, if I was looking around and saying there aren't any false teachers around, then I'd have to say, that's funny. God said they'd be here. They're here. And it confirms God's Word and it tells me that we are right at the last stages before the coming of Jesus Christ second thing he tells us is what they will do. Verse 18 says they are mockers, and verse 19 says these are the ones who cause divisions. They mock and they cause divisions. Now what do they mock? Well, Peter told us in chapter 3 that they mock the coming of Christ. They say, where is the promise of his coming? He's been gone for 1,900 years. Where is he? That's one of the things they mock, but they don't stop there. They mock the idea of the creation. They mock the idea of the flood. They mock the idea of miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ. They mock the truth of God. And because they mock the truth of God, they cause divisions. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 30, this way. He said, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. They will cause divisions. Now, these individuals may talk a lot about ecumenical gatherings, but they cause divisions because they do not believe the truth of God. And you can look around today and see example after example of individuals who are not only splitting churches, but splitting denominations by their mockery of the truth of God. Third thing he tells us is why they do it. Two reasons. One is moral. Look at verse 18 at the end. They are mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. They mock the truth of God because they want to satisfy their own sinful desires. They mock the truth of God because they don't want God to tell them how to live. You see, they will not, in, they will not admit that. They will probably say, I have some real intellectual problems with the Bible. You see, their problem is not intellectual. Their problem is moral. They want to live life their own way after their own desires. Jesus said in John 3:20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Why do they hate the truth of God? Why do they hate the light? Because they want to hide in the darkness with their sin. First problem is moral. Second reason they mock the truth of God is spiritual. Look at the end of verse 19. They are worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. The word worldly-minded is the word natural. It's the word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he said, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. It's the Greek word soukakos, which means soulish. And it's interesting, he says they are soulish, devoid of the Spirit. They are only operating in the soul. They are not operating in the Spirit. And, of course, one of the tragedies today is that some of God's people can't tell the difference between 
soul ministry and spiritual ministry. Soul ministry magnifies man. Spirit ministry magnifies Jesus Christ. Soul ministry may entertain and it may educate, but only spirit ministry can edify. Soul ministry is based on what man thinks. Spirit ministry is based on what God says. And so the first step in a stumble-free life is to know. To know what the Word of God says about false teachers so that you will expect them and so that you can recognize them. Second step is grow. And that's in verses 20 and 21. If we're going to live a stumble-free life, it's not enough for us to know about the false teachers. We have to grow spiritually. And Jude gives us four exhortations to help us with that in these two verses. The first one is at the beginning of verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. False teachers are tearing down. We need to be building up, and the place we need to start is with our own lives. Now, how are we to be built up? He says we are to be built up on your most holy faith. We're to be built up on our faith. Now, he may be talking about subjective faith there, or he may be talking about objective faith, as he spoke about earlier in Jude in verse 3, where he talked about the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the truth of God, the revelation of God. And that's the emphasis either way, because if you want to build up your faith... Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So either way, you're going to build up your faith. You're going to have to get back to the Word of God. You're going to have to spend time in the Word of God. The Word of God is what builds me up. Paul said in Acts 20, 32, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up. The Word of God is central in my spiritual growth. You want to be a strong fruitful Christian, you've got to spend time in God's Word. And I want you to notice something here. He says, build yourselves up. He's not talking here to the preacher. He's not talking to one individual who's responsible for doing that. He is talking to each one of us and telling us we each have a responsibility to build ourselves up in our faith, which is built on the Word of God. So you can't open your Bible once a week on Sunday morning and build yourself up. You have got to open the Word of God daily. You have got to build yourself up in the Word of God. The gifted Chinese preacher, Watchman Nee, used to read through the New Testament once a month. And he had a motto for the Chinese church, and that was, no Bible, no breakfast. Now, if I, I wonder if we followed that motto, how many of us would go hungry? I love the words of Job in Job 23, 12. He said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I treasure God's word more than my food. Now, when you get to that point, you will be being built up in your faith. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We are to grow. First exhortation, build yourself up in your most holy faith, which is based on the Word of God. Second exhortation is at the end of verse 20, praying in the Holy Spirit. The Word of God and prayer 
go hand in hand in spiritual growth. If all we do is read and study the Bible, we'll have a great deal of light, but we'll have very little power. If all we do is pray and ignore the Word of God, we will have a great amount of zeal, but no knowledge. We have to have both. The apostles described their commitment in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4 this way. They said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We need both of those. And they have to be balanced in our lives. I have to be spending time in God's Word. I have to be spending time in prayer. Now, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it means the same thing that Paul meant in Galatians 5.16 when he said we are to walk in the Spirit. We are to yield ourselves to the power and control of the Spirit of God in every step of our lives. And when we come to prayer, we are to do the same thing. We're to yield ourselves to the power and control of the Spirit of God. You see, you may pray in solitude, but if you're a Christian, you never pray alone because the Spirit of God enters into your prayers. In fact, He is the one who enables us to pray. In Ephesians 2.18, we read, For through Christ, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. We pray through Christ in the Spirit. He gives us that access. In fact, it's the Spirit of God who motivates us to pray. There's a verse in Zechariah 12.10 that describes him this way. It says, He is the Spirit of grace and supplication. He is the Spirit of prayer. So if you are walking in the Spirit, guess what He will do? He will get you on your knees because that's what He leads us to because that's His desire that we spend time with the Father. He enables us to pray. He motivates us to pray. And not only that, but He guides us in prayer. 1 Corinthians 2.11 tells us that the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. And when I come to prayer, my goal is to yield myself to the Spirit of God so that I am praying according to the mind of God. Because you know what happens when I pray according to the mind of God? I get my prayer answered. 1 John 5.14 says, If we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. See, prayer is not me getting my will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. You say, well, what about when I don't know what God's will is? Well, the Spirit helps me in that situation. Romans 8, 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When I come to God and I don't know how to pray about a situation, guess what the Spirit of God does? He intercedes for me. He prays for me. And guess what? He always gets his prayers answered because he prays according to the will of God. Exciting ministry that he has. And so we're told in our growth to pray in the Holy Spirit. Third exhortation. Verse 21 at the beginning. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, time in the Word and time in prayer can sometimes become routine. And so he adds this third exhortation. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, before we look at what that means, let's be sure we understand what it doesn't mean. He doesn't say, keep yourself saved. So you can't keep yourself saved any more than you could save yourself to begin with. That's God's work. 
And he assures us of that in verse 1 of this letter when he says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. That's God's job. He keeps me. He saves me. He keeps me. That's something he does. And so this exhortation is not keep yourself saved. But if we look at it closely, he also says, or doesn't say, keep God loving you. See, God loves you unconditionally. And you can't do one thing to cause him to love you more. And you can't do one thing to cause him to love you less. He loves you. So he's not saying somehow make God love you more. That's not the issue here. And we have that assurance also in verse 1 because in addressing us in this letter, he calls us the beloved in God the Father. We are already loved by the Father. But I want you to notice something else he doesn't say here. He doesn't say keep yourself loving God. The idea is not that I start generating some kind of love because I can't generate love. See, love is not something I generate. It's reactive. It's responsive. 1 John 4.19 says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. Now, that's not the idea that one day I found out that God loved me and I decided to love him back. God's love is such that when he loves me, he saves me. He places his spirit inside of me. And because his spirit is inside of me, I now have the capacity to respond in love. That's why Romans 5, 5 says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You say, well, all right, what does it mean? He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. He's referring to God's love for us, and he's telling us that we need to keep ourselves in it, which tells me, that I can get out of it. There is a place where God's love is flowing. I can stand in that love and, and bask in it and abide in it, or I can get out of it. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Be under my love. Be in the place where my love is present. Now let me illustrate this. I think the best illustration in Scripture is Luke chapter 15, where we read about the prodigal son. The prodigal son was loved by his father. And the fact that he went off into the far country didn't change that. His father loved him just as much. But you see, he was not abiding in his father's love. When he came back to his father, he placed himself back under his father's love. And what happened? He got a ring, a robe, sandals, a fattened cap, and a party. The love was the same, but he wasn't keeping himself under the love of the Father. God loves us. Sometimes we head off for the far country. And so Jude is saying, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in that sphere where God's blessing and benefits are coming with his love. You say, well, how do I know when I'm in that place? Well, listen to this verse, John 15, 10. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do I abide in his love? I keep his commandments. See, when I disobey God, that's the road to the far country. 
When I obey God, I am putting myself, I am keeping myself under His love. I'm staying in the house where the blessings are and the benefits are. Fourth exhortation. The end of verse 21. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now Jude has said much about the future of false teachers. Now he tells us something about our future, and it's quite a contrast. They will receive judgment and condemnation. We will receive mercy. They will receive eternal fire. We will receive eternal life. And so Jude says you need to be looking forward to that with anticipation and expectation. The very event that the false teachers mock the most, saying, where is the promise of His coming? We embrace. We are to live our lives with our eyes on the clouds. In Titus 2.13, Paul said, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are to be looking expectantly for the coming of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, what's that got to do with growing? Well, it has a lot to do with growing. Listen to 1 John 3.3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. If I am expecting Jesus Christ to come back today, what does that do to my life? It makes me shape up a little bit. It makes me get serious about obedience. And so when I've got the right perspective, realizing that he's coming and he might come today, there's a certain urgency about getting that obedience into my life. And so that's what Jude is telling us here. The second step to stumble-free living is grow. And if you'll notice in these two verses, we find in there three things that are very familiar throughout Scripture. Faith, hope, and love. Those are the three areas where we grow. Third step is go. Verses 22 to 23. See, it's not enough for me just to know that false teachers are out there. And it's not enough for me just to grow so that I'm not going to stumble. The next step is for me to go because there are others all around me who are being deceived by false teachers. And in verses 22 and 23, Jude tells us how to respond to three types of individuals. Now, if you have a King James Version, you will not find it translated this way. I'm going to go by the New American Standard because I think that's the best translation of this passage. Three individuals, the doubter, the deceived, and the dangerous. First of all, the doubter, verse 22 and have mercy on some who are doubting. Some people are wavering. They're doubting because they're hearing all kinds of messages. They're hearing the gospel of grace. They're hearing the way of Cain, that you can come by good works. They're hearing the message of Korah, that we don't need a mediator. We're all going to get to God. They're hearing all these messages, and they're close to salvation, but they're confused. They're doubting. And they have a lot of questions. You've probably dealt with people like this. Some of you have been there yourselves. Some of you are still there today. You're at this point. You're close to salvation, but you've got a lot of doubts. You've got a lot of questions. The tendency in that situation is to grab that person by the lapel and shake them and say, why can't you understand this? It's right here. But that's not what we're going to do because that's not very effective. So Jude says, what? Have mercy on them. 
Be patient. Answer their questions, even when they ask the same question over and over and over again. And show them the same mercy that God has shown to you. And by that mercy, we might be able to draw them into the kingdom of God. That's the doubter. But there's a second individual that we need to reach out to, and that's the deceived. Verse 23a. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, I think these are the people who are part of a church where a false teacher is preaching his message. And maybe they've been there all their lives, and they don't know anything else. They believe what they believe because they've always believed it. They are in the system. They understand the doctrine. They've bought into it. They bought into a works salvation. This individual is more difficult. In fact, it's interesting here that Jude describes this person as being almost in the fire. Why? Because that person is closer to hell than anybody else. You know who Jesus said was farthest from the kingdom of God in his day? The Pharisees. Why? Because they had a system of belief that said good works will earn my way to God. And they were the most difficult to reach. When you come to an individual like that and you confront them with their sin, guess what happens? They get offended. Jesus said, speaking of the Pharisees, in, or speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15, you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They're closer to hell because they bought into a false system. You know anybody like that? Dealing with anybody like that? Guess what? Jude says you can save them. They're not beyond reach. But your approach has to be a little bit different. You have to be a little more aggressive. See, when you snatch someone out of a fire, you don't worry about messing up their hair. You don't worry about maybe giving them a few scratches on the way out of the building. You have to be more aggressive. This is like the angels who came into Sodom and took Lot and his family by the hand and they drugged them out of the city. They snatched them out of the fire. I've heard people say, well, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to tell them the truth because they might be offended. Well, listen. If I was on the edge of the flames, I would want to be offended. I would want somebody to love me enough to go in there and offend me to try to bring me out. When I've dealt with people like this, I can't think of anybody that I've dealt with who hasn't got angry before they got saved. Because, you see, a person in this situation has to let go of this whole system that they've been believing in for so long, and that's a difficult thing to do. And so there's no other way than to offend them in the process because they've got to understand that they've been wrong in order to take hold of the truth. And we have to approach people like that. We have to reach out to them. We have to snatch them out of the fire. Third individual is the dangerous Verse 23 at the end. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, these are the people who are not so much caught up in the message of the false teacher as they are in the sin that it leads to. And they have been enslaved in that sin. And Jude says, when you approach this person, you show them mercy with fear. You show them mercy, but you have great caution. Why? 
because in dealing with them, there's a possibility that you yourself could fall into temptation. And so when you go to deal with a person who's enslaved in sin, you've got to be especially careful. And that's why he adds the statement, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, he may mean that literally, which would mean don't even get any secondhand sin. Don't even touch the garment that was associated with the sin. Or he may be speaking figuratively because in Scripture there's a figurative message throughout that our garments that we're wearing indicates our relationship with God. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, he talks about people who have soiled garments and people who have white garments. And if that's the case here, then he is saying that we are to love the sinner and show mercy to him or her, but at the same time we are to hate the sin. Now, take your Bible for just a quick moment and look at Zechariah chapter 3. Because I'm convinced that Jude has this passage in mind as he's writing his letter. Zechariah chapter 3, a great little chapter if you've never come across it before. And if your pages are stuck together there, then you probably haven't come across it before. Zechariah 3, notice verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now this is not the Joshua we read about so much in the Old Testament. This is Joshua who was a high priest of Israel. He's standing before the Lord and Satan was standing there at his right hand to accuse him. We said before, that's what Satan does. He accuses God's people. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Now where have we read that? That's the very words Michael stated to Satan in Jude's letter. The Lord rebuke you. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? There's another analogy Jude uses. He's one who has been snatched right out of the fire. But then notice how he goes on. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel... And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with festal robes. And there again the picture. He's dressed in filthy garments. Those are taken off and replaced with festal robes of righteousness. When we reach out to those who are engulfed in sin, we have to be careful. We have to love the sinner and hate the sin and yet reach out to try to bring them into the kingdom of God. And so the third step to a stumble-free life is go. Reaching out to the doubter, the deceived, and the dangerous. Which brings us to the fourth point, and that is glow. Now, I know you've been waiting for this one. Glow. You know, it's a difficult thing to live for Christ in these last days when false teachers are all around. And it's a hazardous thing to be reaching out to people because if you get too close to the flame, you might get burned. If you get too close to the polluted garment, you might be defiled. And there's a tendency on our part to say, well, you know, there's too many pitfalls. I'll never make it. But in his doxology, in which he closes his letter, Jude reminds us that when we know and we grow and we go, then we can go And I see three reasons why we can glow in verses 24 and 25. First of all, we can glow with confidence. Notice verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you 
from stumbling. Amidst all the pitfalls of life, we can walk with confidence. Not self-confidence, but God-confidence. I'm walking through this life and there's all kinds of things that want to stumble me up and all these false teachers, but I know that God is able to keep me from stumbling. And that is a great promise. I love the verse in Psalm 37, 23. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Beautiful picture. We're walking through this life, and there's all kinds of pitfalls and all kinds of possibilities to stumble. But when I start to stumble, guess what? God doesn't let me fall because he holds my hand. And that's something to glow about, the confidence that God has given us by his promise. Second thing, we can glow with joy. Look at the end of verse 24. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Not only does he keep me from stumbling in this life, but he will make me stand in the presence of his glory. Now think about it. We're going to stand in the presence of God's glory. You know what God's glory is like? It's described in Isaiah chapter 6, and it says the holy angels put their wings over their faces when they stand in the glory of God. Guess what? We're going to stand there. You say, oh man, that sounds bad. Well, guess what? You're going to stand there, and verse 24 says you're going to stand there blameless. That word means without blemish. You say, well, how did I get without blemish? How can I stand in the presence of the glory of God and not be consumed? Because Jesus took your filthy garments off, and he paid for your sin at the cross, and he put on you his robe of righteousness. What a great thing. And Jude says, in that day, you will have great joy. And guess what? You don't have to wait till then to start getting excited about it. You can start glowing about that joy and that promise right now. Third thing, we can glow with worship. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a fitting end to this book because it reminds us of the beauty of the gospel. It's all God's work and it's all by God's grace and so it's all for God's glory. He gets it all. And when I begin to understand the fact that he saved me out of the flames of hell, he forgave me, he placed his spirit inside of me, he is keeping me from stumbling in this life and He's going to make me stand in His presence blameless one day. The only response that makes any sense is worship. Jude paints a discouraging picture of the last days, but he closes his book with four steps to stumble-free living. Know that the false teachers are out there. Grow through the word, prayer, abiding in His love and longing for His return. Go, reaching out to the doubter, the deceived, and the dangerous, and glow with confidence in God, with joy, and with worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this practical passage of Scripture that reminds us of the steps we need to take to walk faithfully with You in this world. 
And Lord, we thank you that it's not left up to us to do that, but you have empowered us, that you will keep us, and that you will protect us as we walk through this life. You have our present plan, and you have our future plan. And Lord, I pray that we might rejoice in that today, walk worthy of our calling, and reach out to those around us that we might draw them to the kingdom of God as well. We pray in Jesus' name.